0: Well, I want to say good morning again to you. So glad that you could really be with us. And uh, it's always hard to know what to expect on on some of these kind of holiday weekends. In fact, you know, President's Day, I I don't know, it doesn't seem like a holiday, does it? Right. I've always, it's those those minor um, holidays like that that we observe uh, always catch me a little bit off guard. Like, man, is it really always, or almost the end of February? And it totally is. Um, So... We're gathered here in worship on this Sunday, just like any other, and it's good to be here. Well, we've been in the midst of a sermon series called Compassion in God's World, and God's compassion for us led to one of the greatest acts of love that the world has ever seen, sending of Jesus, his death on the cross for us. And when we care about others and work to make things right, we're reflecting that same heart of compassion that God has towards us. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've taken a look at the purposes behind what underpinned Jesus's uh, desire, really, or, or um, kind of underpinned his compassion in the world. And last week, we talked about how he was willing to cross even borders, like physical borders, to, to walk in places where he wasn't supposed to, because that's where, you know, the in Jesus' day, it was the Samaritans. They, they were the sinners. They were the half-breeds. They were the people that God didn't care about. And yet Jesus boldly went over there, uh, way outside of his comfort zone, to extend the healing and compassionate touch of God to them. And this week, we're going to turn our attention towards John chapter 6 and a miracle of Jesus known as the feeding of the 5,000. And so we're going to just jump right in and begin for you. This is John chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up, and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So this is the beginning of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. We're actually going to Take a look at that, this passage this week. Uh, we're going to come back to it in a couple weeks in Lent from a little different angle. And then next week, as I mentioned before, Eric Cave will be sharing with us on the same theme of compassion in God's world. But the context here is Jesus testing Philip. Philip, do you see the problem here? Uh, Philip, do you care? And do you have confidence that I, Jesus, can fix it? you know, Philip, as one of the disciples following Jesus up till this point, has seen some pretty crazy stuff, uh, but never something quite like what Jesus plans to do next. Throughout their relationship with Jesus, he's constantly kind of pushing and challenging and stretching them in terms of their life experience, but also in terms of their faith and their understanding of who God is and how he works in this world. And after a really intense period of activity and travel, I mean, the disciples have to be exhausted. They've re- withdrawn. This this uh, area around the Sea of Galilee is very remote. It's hard to get to. You know, they call it a mountainside. We would probably look at it, you know, f- from living here in the Pacific Northwest, and we would call it a hillside. Um, so, you know, perspective, I guess, is very important. But still, there's not a lot of towns or, or really even people in this region. And the disciples have seen Jesus turn water into wine. They've seen him heal a man who was lame for 38 years. This is all in the book of John leading up to this. They've watched him debate religious insiders, really smart, learned, educated people, and kind of win. Uh, They've seen him walk through. They followed him through Samaria, where a whole village believed that he was the Messiah. And now, as a crowd gathers in this very remote and far-flung place, Jesus asks a simple question. Hey, where can we buy enough bread? And Philip decides that the situation is hopeless. I mean, I'm not even sure he like took this as a serious question because this has to be just instantaneous, right? You could have a half year's wages and it wouldn't get enough bread for everyone to have a bite, let alone where are we going to find that much bread. But by asking this question, Jesus, I mean, it's just assumed that people don't have food. They're kind of out in the tules here. There's no town to get supplies. My first question is, who exactly travels like that? Right? You're going to go up into the woods or wherever to hear some preacher speak, and if you're going to be there that long, you're not going to take some snacks with you? Well, this tells us about the kind of people that are following Jesus at this point. They're not the bourgeoisie of uh, Jerusalem. They are very much peasants. This is the working poor. Uh, They've heard about Jesus. They've heard him about the signs, the miraculous healings that he's performed around Galilee and parts of Judea. And so they want to put eyes on him. They want to see Jesus in action. And so they're uh, following him out into the woods, so to speak, or into the grasslands. And these were people who were very used to just getting by. They'll figure it out. They'll scavenge for food. Um, They're probably not used to three square meals a day. Um, uh, Being hungry is not something that's outside of their experience. And so Jesus is about to perform one of his most iconic miracles by feeding this mass of people. And this, he provides us with a very important lesson about Jesus. Really, there's two of them. The first one is this. Don't ever underestimate Jesus. Maybe that's one that we can just carry into all across our lives, right? Don't underestimate people. Especially don't underestimate God. The second one, the lesson that we're going to learn today, is when it comes to having compassion for others, are there some people who deserve it more and others who don't deserve it at all? When it comes to having compassion, who gets it? Who deserves it? Who earns it? And this is a loaded question, I know. For the people in Jesus' day, this question was very much already settled. Those at the top deserved compassion. That would have been obvious to everyone in Jesus' day. And uh, the, the wealth that a person had, the social standing that a person had, that was just kind of proof that God was pleased with them. And then likewise, for people who you know, were poor or disadvantaged or, you know, living lower on society's kind of status, you know, that was obvious that God wasn't smiling on them, was probably displeased with them. And so if you were one of Jesus's disciples, in a, an experience like what was going to happen on this hillside or mountainside that day would have really turned your world upside down. You see, their society was so segmented. It was highly structured. Not really, I mean, very different from ours today, but the categories are kind of common to human beings, I think, across cultures. But for the disciples in Jesus' day, for the people living in that day, the the structure worked like this. First and foremost was your nationality uh, or, or, or your race, your ethnicity, your cultural background. And for The Jews in Jesus' day, there were two categories. You were either Jewish or you weren't. So they would have lumped anyone who wasn't Jewish into a big category, and they called them Gentiles. And God's promises didn't extend to them. The Jews were a very special, um, chosen group of people. That was the first kind of category. The next category and And this is you know, in my opinion, would have been gender. There were men and there were women, and Jewish men very much understood that God had smiled on them and hadn't made them a woman. That sounds harsh to us, but they literally had sayings like that. they would they would there was like rabbinical prayers where they'd wake up and they would say, "Oh God, thank you for not making me a woman. I'm not making this up." okay That blows our mind, but that's how segmented it was, men and women. Uh, another very structured thing would have been just religious kind of tribes. So, you know, when you read your Bible, you got the Pharisees, which the Pharisees weren't all that bad. It was like, it, it started out as like a Bible reading movement, you know, like let's read Torah and practice Torah together. I mean, it was good that they'd, they'd gone far, far from good, um, by Jesus's time. You know, and then there's the Sadducees, which are religious elite. There's There's scribes and lawyers and there's all sorts of rabbis and lots of different, pre. you know, there's just different religious segmentation within their society. And then another huge one would have been wealth. Okay, society was divided between rich and poor. And the crazy thing is a bunch of these divisions were totally justified in their mind by their theological beliefs. So you would have had, you know, clean and unclean, you know, people who were ill or sick or disabled or Gentile. They were unclean and then there's everyone else. The one we wanna look at this morning is something that's called blessings and curses. This comes out of the book of Deuteronomy. And it it, it means that if you follow the commandments, you will be blessed by God. If you do not follow God's commandments, you will be cursed. Very black and white. And this is obviously grossly oversimplified. Uh, and Jesus's day and age, they would have thought of you know there's divine rewards, there's divine punishment for your behavior, and so some people believe that if you had material wealth, wow, well, good job, God is smiling on you. If you were poor, if you didn't have material wealth, you hadn't been successful in that part of your life, well, you know, maybe you did something wrong. Uh, you did something wrong. You're obviously a sinner, like that's a, an expression of God's wrath in your life. He is not smiling on you. And, um, you know, it's easy to, to think about this in our day and age and wonder how people could be so naive, but it isn't as cut and dry as I just made it. You know, if, if you read the book of Proverbs, if you read through Psalms, There are lots of instances there where the writer is wrestling with this whole idea in front of God, like, God, why do the wicked prosper? Why? Why why do the the righteous people, the good people that I know, suffer? Well, that's a question that we ask, isn't it? Uh, You know, they're crying out, God, where's the justice here in our world? And so while this whole blessing, by the way, those are things, those are prayers in front of God. They're letting God answer those. Um, When it comes to blessings and curses, this might seem really naive to us. Oh, if you do what God says, you're going to be blessed. If you don't do what God says, you're going to be cursed. Um, But we believe in kind of similar cultural axioms. Here's one. If you just work hard enough, right? If you just work hard enough, you'll be successful. And this kind of sneaks into our thinking about our world. You know, if, if you drive through a low-income neighborhood or, you know, or you see someone who's poor, there's these subtle judgments that we make, uh, often unconscious. And, you know, maybe I should just speak for myself, right? Uh, why are they so poor? Well, they're lazy. They didn't work hard in school. They didn't take advantage of the opportunities that they had. Um, they don't apply themselves at work. Oh, why is someone poor? Oh, well, obviously they lack self-control. You know, there's some sort of addiction happening here. If they just worked harder at it. And we kind of make these assumptions about people being responsible, especially for their economic station in life. that That's all on them. And naturally, hard work, perseverance, dedication, You know, they're a component to any one success story. That's a given. Of course it matters. Hard work, perseverance, dedication. But it's not as cut and dried as that, is it? You know, what role do circumstances play? What role do, um, you know, fortunate timing or dumb luck play in someone's economic success? Sometimes quite a bit. So, of course, taking ownership for our own choices in life, it's critical. You have to own that, your, your own choices in your life. That's a must. But we've all encountered people who, as the saying goes, are born on third base believing they hit a triple. And so, you know, some of us were, I looked that up this week because I'm like, where does that come from? Apparently, it's Barry Switzer. You know who Barry Switzer is? He's a football coach. Oklahoma and then the Dallas Cowboys from a long time ago. He had all these like classic one liners. I thought that was a really good one. Um, and what he was saying there is some of us are born into better opportunities. That's a privilege. Some of us just are. In Jesus's day, they would have tagged more onto that. They would have said that person is more blessed by God because they are better in God's eyes. And so I point this out because of this. It's really hard to feel compassion towards another person when you see that their plight or their suffering is somehow their fault. It's really hard to have compassion on someone when that happens, isn't it? And so what kind of things are operating in the background in our mind as we go about our world they affect us whether we're aware of it or conscious of it as not and there's a biblical phrase that comes to my mind that you reap what you sow and sometimes that gets applied in situations where you know hey we should have compassion on people well you reap what you sow but that's not like an expression of God's will. Like this is how God wants it. So now they're suffering. No, it's an observation. Yeah, you, you, you get out of things what you put into them. So if you, you know, sow discord and distrust among a group of people, well, you might be distrusted. You know, what I mean, it's it's an observation. It's not well God wills it to be that way. And so Jesus is attacking this head on with his disciples. And over and over again, Jesus sought to teach his disciples. He seeks to teach us uh, what God's heart is towards the poor. And I'm going to go through this list, all right? Because when you start to look at what Jesus says about the poor, (laughs) at least it makes me uncomfortable. Jesus cared about the poor, economically disadvantaged, the people left on the margins, left behind, uh, the physically disabled, the sick, the ill, whoever it might be that's been pushed outside of what we would consider mainstream normal. Jesus had a huge heart for them. Uh, As it applies to the poor, in his hometown, he picks up a scroll from Isaiah. He reads it and says, God's anointed me to proclaim good news to who? To the poor. We just read this passage two weeks ago. Um, What he was saying there is redemption of the poor was part of God's plan for redeeming the whole world for the restoration of all things that's gonna happen in God's kingdom. Next, in the Beatitudes. Remember what the Beatitudes are? This is like Sermon on the Mount. This is when Jesus' most famous is teaching. I mean, even in my college philosophy classes, we learned about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, the Blesseds, as Jesus goes through. Do you remember what the first blessed is? Blessed are the who? Are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And with that whole, you know, listing of blesseds, Jesus is turning the values of our world upside down. He's saying it's going to be different in God's kingdom. Uh, Another time, he's teaching on, it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. This is in Matthew 25. And this parable, there's, there's this king that Jesus is saying, he's, gonna, he's welcoming his followers into his kingdom. You know, take your, these are his servants, take your inheritance. And he says this, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous answer him, well, when did we do that? And the king says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And Jesus is equating, you know, that serving or neglecting the poor is like serving or neglecting God. That's one of those passages I just don't like. But it went beyond just Jesus' concern for physical needs. There was a, a woman, this is Luke chapter 8, there's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She lost her, she was impoverished because she'd spent all of her money on doctors. They couldn't help her. She comes up to Jesus in a crowd and she touches his cloak and she's instantly healed. And Jesus turns to, you know, find out who touched me in this big crowd. And it's her. Your faith has healed you. There's spiritual healing that Jesus wants to offer. There's restoration for her among her community, and then there's the parable of the wedding feast. This is Luke chapter 14, and this is where there's this like party that this guy is throwing, and he he, he sends he sends his servants out to invite the you know the the rich and powerful, and they all turn him down, and so he's mad, and he's like, well just go invite anybody that you find on the street, bring them in. And this is about the wedding feast of God. And through this, uh, it, what Jesus is saying that uh, the poor, the outcasts of society, that they're being welcomed into God's kingdom too. And over and over again, Jesus uses this phrase, the least of these. And he means that towards people who are living on the margins of society the poor, the physically disadvantaged, people who are judged as, you know, others. They hold a special place in God's heart. They hold a special place in God's plan. And I'm hammering on this this morning. Because when we read our Bibles, are we seeing this? Do we notice, especially in, in Jesus, over and over and over again, he hits on this theme? it should make us uncomfortable. And sometimes we just look right over the top. Um, There's a special place in his heart for people who have been left behind. And so if that was Jesus' heart, then what does that mean for me as a disciple? You know, the Apostle James has real strong words. This is Jesus' own brother. In James chapter 2, He learns about, there was favoritism uh, among one of the churches based on wealth. So, you know, based on how wealthy you looked, you got better seats in church than people who didn't have. And so James was rightly outraged by this. He says this, this is James chapter 2. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor um, in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised for those who love him? you've dishonored the poor. And he goes on. I mean, he is not uh, kind here. Or I mean, he, he doesn't let him off the hook. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? The ones who are dragging you to court? The ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So from the start, Jesus is on this hillside, and uh, he's trying to break through to his disciples. And this is so hard for us, even 2,000 years later, because it's so ingrained that my worth as a person is somehow connected to my net worth. It's so ingrained in us that my value as a human being goes up or down based on the value of my possessions. And it's easy for us to sit here and go, well, duh, Dan, we know that it's not. I want to make sure. In God's kingdom, all people are of inestimable value. In God's kingdom, uh, all people should be treated with dignity and with a respect that befits them as a child of the king. We have to remember that. We have to live that out. We have to do that. And so Jesus sees this big crowd gathering on a hillside, and he asks Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread? And Philip says, hopeless Jesus. And continuing on, verse 8. This is another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So here Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 men. They would have sat them down in like head of household groups. So this isn't counting the women and children. So how many people are there? I don't know. Double? More? This is a huge crowd. And Andrew chimes in. He's like, where are we going to find enough bread? Well, here's, here's this kid. And I kind of wonder if Jesus is actually looking at this kid when he asks this question. Hey, where are we going to find enough bread to, to buy for these people? I don't know. Here's this kid with... And he's like the first entrepreneur in John's gospel. Right? Is he, is he there to eat it? Or is he there to sell it? My money is on, he's there to sell it. Which even makes the disciples look worse because this kid even figured this out. Like, hey, there's going to be not enough food here out in the wilderness. And so, um, who's going to provide enough bread for these people? Jesus is. And in the history of Israel's story of food, story of of food and water are always attached to faith. You've got Adam and Eve and the tree, you've got Noah. You got Moses, especially. He's out in the wilderness. He parts the water of the Red Sea. Manna comes from heaven to feed the Israelites. Water comes out of a rock. I mean, there's there's all these stories in Israel's history that are always attached to faith, faith. And the bottom line for God's people is always the same: you're supposed to have faith, have faith, have faith. In your Creator, have faith in Jesus. Is that something you need to hear this morning? Have faith. And honestly, you know, I'm never sure what anyone needs to hear because it depends on what your life is like right now. So put yourself in the story. You know, as you sit there in your mind's eye, you're sitting on that hillside and you're seeing this crowd come up. You know, are you with Jesus and are you one of the disciples? Are you like one of the people in the crowd that morning? Or maybe you're like the little boy. So if you're like the disciples, you just need to have faith. Or another way to put it, have confidence in Jesus. The situation isn't hopeless. In fact, Jesus sees... Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's not surprised or wowed or worried by what's going on. He's got it firmly under control. He's going to provide a way for you and I forward, just like he provided a way forward that day. We can count on him. In Jesus, there is hope. There is hope for situations that seem hopeless have faith. You know, maybe you see yourselves uh, like you're part of the crowd showing up just to, to check out this Jesus spectacle. What's all of this about? You can have faith in Jesus too because Jesus is enough. He's enough. You might worry about where you're going, how you're going to get there, what you're going to eat. But if you're in pursuit of the one who created the heavens, he's enough. And in Jesus, there is peace. Peace that calms all of life's storms that surpasses all understanding. So maybe that's where you are this morning and I just invite you to have faith in Jesus. You know, maybe it's easy for you to see yourself in terms of the little boy, the little boy who's, who's there, who has faith. And you can give Jesus what you've got. Because Jesus is kind of in the business of doing a lot with just a little bit. And this one always speaks to me because I walk around the world, it's easy to see so many problems, so many issues, so many needs, how can I possibly do enough? But God hasn't asked me to do that. He's actually asked me to be faithful. He's asked me to follow. And when the time comes, I give Jesus what I have. It's actually not mine anyway. You know, whether it's my time and attention, you know, whether it's my resources, my money, my stuff. When the time comes and Jesus asks for it, I just give it to him. I live with open hands. It's not mine anyway. And Jesus can take that little bit, the little tiny, that doesn't seem like it's going to do it, and he can maximize that for his kingdom. You see, in Jesus, there is joy. Joy in the act of generosity. Joy in sharing what God has given you. And, and, And being used for his larger purposes in his kingdom. So no matter where you stand in this story, the disciples, the crowd, the boy, maybe somewhere else, the solution's always the same. Have faith in Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning and we want to we be the kind of followers that have faith and confidence in you. And, and man, we're human. Uh, sometimes, uh, maybe it's more than sometimes, we worry, we have anxiety, Lord, over the things that are happening to us in our world and the things that are going on in our world. And it's hard to see a way forward. But God, those are the times where you call us to trust you. And because you live inside of us, Lord, because you go where we go, you're in those places too. So help us not only to have faith, but help us to be Jesus. Help us to be the hands and feet of Christ uh, wherever we might go, wherever you might send us, wherever we might find ourselves. Lord, help us to listen to your spirit. Help us to follow your way. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.